Thank you. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10. The theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ. That's evident as we open the book, we find out that He is superior to the prophets. He is superior to the angels. He is superior to Moses. In the last few chapters, we have seen that He has a superior priesthood and a superior tabernacle and a superior covenant. And in this chapter, He's going to emphasize the fact that Christ has a superior sacrifice. We're going to see that in two parts. First in verses 1-4, to four, we're going to see the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrifices. And then in verses 5-18, to 18, the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. First of all, the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrifices. In verses 1-4, he points out three things that underline their insufficiency. First of all, they cannot make the people perfect. Look at verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Now the key word there is never. The law with all its sacrifices can never make those who come to it perfect. Now what does he mean when he says make them perfect? Well, in the book of Hebrews, the word perfect is synonymous with salvation. It means access into the presence of God. From God's standpoint, for us to come into His presence requires that we be perfect. From our, from our standpoint, the most perfect thing to have is access into the presence of God. Let me show you that. Look back at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19 says, For the law made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there is bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The law can't make you perfect, but the better hope can do, make you perfect. And what is perfection? That we can draw near to God. The Old Testament priests offered the same sacrifices. Bulls, goats, lambs, turtle doves, continually. Here in verse 1, it says they are offered year by year. Emphasizing the most important sacrifices in the mind of a Jewish person. Those sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. If any sacrifices could make people perfect, it was the sacrifices made on the Day of Atonement. But the writer says those sacrifices can never make people perfect. Why not? Because the beginning of verse 1 says the law was a shadow of good things to come. It was not the very form of things. It was not the very substance of things. Now what is a shadow? A shadow is image without substance. It's obscure. It's imperfect. You say, well, if the sacrifices in the Old Testament were the shadow, if the law was the shadow, then what is the substance? Well, listen to a verse in Colossians 2.17. Speaking about the Sabbath day and the feasts and the sacrifices, it says, these are things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Old Testament sacrifices were the shadow pointing to the reality that was to come, which is Jesus Christ. And so as the Worshipper brought his sacrifice in the Old Testament. He was continually reminded that God is holy and that God hates sin and that the wages of sin is death because over and over again, these animals were sacrificed and their blood was shed. And it was a reminder of what sin costs and how God hates sin. But it was also a shadow. These sacrifices represented the real sacrifice to come, which was Jesus Christ. And God intended for those worshipers to come as they came bringing their sacrifice to really be repentant about their sin and to really by faith understand to some degree that these sacrifices were simply a token, a representation, a shadow of the fact that God was going to provide the real sacrifice on a future day. 
The, sh- the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament were simply a shadow. They cannot make people perfect. And to make that argument, look at what he says in verse 2. He says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? If the Old Testament sacrifices had provided perfection, if they had provided salvation, if they had provided access to God's presence, then they would have ceased, right? The job would have been completed, but there was no ceasing. They went on continually, nonstop, because they could not make people perfect. And then the second reason he gives why they are insufficient is because they cannot cleanse a guilty conscience. Look at verse 2 again. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. What's that mean? No longer have consciousness of sins. I think at first reading, we kind of get the idea that means I'm not aware of sins. But we know that's not true. In fact, who is the person who is the most aware of sins? It's the believer who has been cleansed. You see, the more I grow as a Christian, the more aware I am of sin in my life. That's why Paul said early in his ministry in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I'm the least of the apostles. And then in the middle of his ministry, he said, Ephesians 3, 8, I'm less than the least of all saints. And then at the end of his ministry, after he'd grown to the most maturity, he said, 1 Timothy 1, 15, I am the chief of sinners. You see, the more he grew, the more aware he became of sin in his life. And so what he's talking about here is not the awareness of sin. What he's talking about is the guilt of sin. You see, as a believer, even though I'm aware of sin in my life, I am free from the guilt of that sin. That's why Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you see, the Old Testament sacrifices could not free the worshiper from guilt. He still had the consciousness of sin. This is more clear if you go back to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 9. Hebrews 9, 9, picking up in the middle of the verse. It says, gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Now that means that a a person in the Old Testament, a worshiper came, came to the temple, brought his sacrifice, went through the whole apparatus of the worship of the high priest, and then he went home with a guilty conscience. Wow. You know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes detective novels, was a practical joker. And one time he sent unsigned telegrams to several of his friends in London. The message on the telegram just simply read, they have discovered everything. Flee at once. According to the story, all of his friends fled the country. Now that may simply be a measure of the kind of friends Doyle had. But I think it underlines the truth that a lot of people walk around with a guilty conscience. A lot of people have skeletons in their closet that they're just hoping nobody finds out about. And they're just hoping that somehow maybe God won't find out about those things. Now we could handle sin a whole lot easier if it didn't lead to guilt. Because we're not that sensitive to sin, so we could probably handle it. But sin leads to guilt. That's why when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They went and hid from God because they couldn't face Him with the fact that they had sinned. That's why when those of you who have little children, when you come home and you can't find your little child, and you go tracking down and he won't look you in the eye, you know that he's got a guilty conscience. Even your dog has a guilty conscience. You come home and your, your dog doesn't come up to you and you go find him, you know he has chewed up your favorite shoes. Well, how do you cleanse your guilty conscience? Well, verse 2 says the Old Testament sacrifices didn't do it. In fact, look at verse 3. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. The Day of Atonement didn't remove sin or their guilt. It just reminded the participant of his sins year by year. How would you like to go through that? Come on the Day of Atonement, and what is it? It's a big reminder that you're a sinner. And it really only paid for the sins of the past year, so the next sin you commit, you've got to hold the guilt for that for another year until the Day of Atonement. It didn't solve the problem. It just put it off for another year. closest thing we can associate that with is April 15th. You know, the Day of Reckoning comes around every year, and there it is, the reminder that I owe taxes. You know, it's interesting that the word reminder in verse 3 is the same Greek word that Jesus used when he instituted the Lord's Supper in Luke twenty-two nineteen. 19. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And when we come to the table, we examine ourselves and we confess our sins. But you know, the gospel has transformed our remembrance from one of guilt to one of grace. Old Testament sacrifices, what do you remember? Your sin. The New Testament sacrifice, what do we remember? God's grace that delivers us from our sins. And then third, they are insufficient because they can't take away sins. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, I can't make it any clearer than that. A person in the Old Testament could sacrifice a lamb every day of his life, and all that blood would not pay for one single sin because animal blood cannot take away sin. It is impossible. So the Old Testament sacrifices could not make people perfect. They could not cleanse the conscience of guilt. They could not take away sins. They were just a shadow of what was to come, and they were just a reminder of sins. And so we see the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrifices, which brings us to the positive side, the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. And I picked out seven points that support it in verses 5 to 18. First of all, Christ's sacrifice was God's plan all along. Notice verses 5 to 7. And this is a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Now, if you notice, the writer here puts these words in the mouth of Jesus as he comes into the world. Now, I have to remind you that this emphasizes the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. He's saying this as he comes into the world. Now, we often say, I came into the world in 1973. No, you did not come into the world. To come into the world, you have to have been somewhere before. You came into being in 1973. But Jesus Christ came into the, this world because he is the eternal God. And as Christ came into the world, he says, to paraphrase, Father, you knew all along that those animal sacrifices were not going to cut it. So you prepared for me a body, and I have come to do your will. And writing to this Jewish readers, he says, there it is in your Old Testament, prophesied that the sacrifices would not be what God desired, but that Jesus would come and accomplish and fulfill that desire. Now what I find interesting is that here in Hebrews it says, in verse 5, but a body thou hast prepared for me. If you go back to Psalm 40, you'll find that it reads, my ears thou hast opened. And so in the, he's using the Septuagint version of this, but it's interesting that there's this differentiation. In Greek, it's a body you have prepared. In, in the Hebrew original, it's my ears you have opened. You say, well, how did he get from ears to body? Well, I think several reasons. 
literally it says in the Hebrew, my ears you have dug out. And the picture there is of God the Father actually digging out the ears of this body that was prepared for Jesus Christ. And so he just goes from the particular of the ears to the whole body in the book of Hebrews. But I think he also picks the word ears because the ears are the part of the body where we hear the command of God and obey. And so God the Father prepared Jesus' ears and when Jesus comes into the world, what does he say? I have come to do thy will, O God. And so the picture in Psalm 40 is that God the Father prepared his ears so that when he came into the world, he would have ears that would hear what the Father said and obey. In fact, to, to see this, look, keep your finger in Hebrews 10 and go back to Isaiah chapter 50. Show you an interesting verse. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 5. This is a messia messianic passage. And in Isaiah chapter 50, notice what it says in verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear. The Lord God has dug out my ear. And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. God the Father dug out Jesus' ears so that he would be responsive and obedient as he came into this world. And then I think there's a third reason why he chooses to emphasize the ear, and it's taken from a passage in Exodus 21.6 where we're told that a Hebrew slave, after he'd served his master for seven years, was set free. But if that slave chose to go on serving his master, his master would take him to the doorway. He would put his ear against the, the side of the door, and he would take an awl, and he would pierce his ear. And that would be the symbol that that servant would, would serve that master for the rest of his life. And so I think here in Psalm 40, we see that God fashioned Jesus' ear and so the whole body. God prepared Jesus' ear to hear and obey. And Jesus willingly had his ear pierced as a sign of his commitment to the Father. So it was God's plan that Christ would come into the world to be our sacrifice. And then secondly, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient because it replaces the Old Testament sacrifices. Notice verse 8. After quoting Psalm 40, then verses 8 and 9, he gives a commentary. He says, after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Now, stop right there. Not only were the sacrifices insufficient, as we saw in verses 1 to 4, but it got to the point where God who established them didn't even want them. He didn't even like them. You see, it says that in verse 8, Thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them. Why not? Because these sacrifices that were intended to be a time when the people came in faith and repentance to God had become just a ritual that had no faith. And so God says, I don't even like them anymore. And there are multiple passages in the Old Testament that indicate this. Back in Psalm 51, 16, David said, Thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. God said, I'm tired of the sacrifice. I don't want the sacrifice. I don't like the sacrifices anymore. But God didn't just not like them. Verse 9 takes it another step. He says at the beginning of verse 8, after saying above, verse 9, then he said, behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. He takes away the first. Now, what is the first? But he quotes in verse 8, sacrifices and offerings. He takes those away in order to establish the second. And what is the second? Well, the second is what he quotes in verse 9. Jesus saying, Behold, I have come to do thy will. And what is the will of God that Jesus came to do? Well, look at verse 10. 
By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What was the will of God that Jesus accomplished when he came into this world? It is that he willingly offered his body as a sacrifice for you and me. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying here, don't miss it. What he's saying here is that with the sacrifice of Jesus, the Old Testament sacrifices were taken away. And then the third point, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient because it makes us holy. Look at verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now that word sanctified means set apart or made holy. It's the same root word that's used throughout the New Testament to, to describe us as saints. Holy ones. And if you'll notice verse 10, it says we have been sanctified. We have been made holy. And in the Greek language, this is the perfect tense. And in the Greek, it's the strongest way to make the point that this has been accomplished and that this is permanent. You see, this is a positional statement. In Christ, I as a believer am holy. Now this is the same word that's also used in the New Testament in a practical way. It's also used in the New Testament to talk about our, our practical growth in holiness in the Lord. In fact, it's used that way if you slide down to verse 14 and you look at the end of verse 14, it says he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And there it reads literally those who are being sanctified. There he's talking about the process of sanctification. But in verse 10 it says we have been made holy. We have been sanctified. You see, the only way that a person can get into the presence of God is to be holy. I can't come any other way. And how do you become holy? You say, well, Dan, I try the best I can to be good. No. So you can try your head off to be holy. And you will never become holy. You will just become tired. How do you become holy? Well, verse 10 says it. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' one sacrifice in that one moment on the cross made every believer holy forever. Wow. We talk about a sufficient sacrifice. And then fourth, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient because it takes away our sins. Notice verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now notice the contrast in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, every priest. Verse 12, but he. Verse 11, every priest stands. There were no seats in the tabernacle. Every priest stands. Verse 12, but he sat down. Verse 11, they were offering time after time the same sacrifices. Verse 12, but he offered one sacrifice. In verse 11, they offered sacrifices which can never take away sins. Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. The Old Testament sacrifices reminded them of their sins. Jesus' one sacrifice removes our sins. And then fifth, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient because it defeated His enemies. Notice verse 13. Waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool, for his feet. Now that's quite an analogy. Jesus is presently seated in heaven and he's waiting to get a footstool. He's waiting to get an ottoman to match his throne. And what is the ottoman? What is the footstool? It's his enemies. Now, the, the last phrase 
in verse 12 is actually a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. And the writer really could have stopped the quotation at that point, but he continues to give the rest of the quotation out of that verse that's given to us in verse 13. And I think he gives it for a couple reasons. One is to encourage his readers. You see, they were being persecuted and mocked by their Jewish neighbors because they were following a crucified Messiah. And he's saying here, just wait. The cross that looked to the natural eye like a place of defeat was actually the place of God's greatest victory. Just wait, because there's coming a day when his enemies will be his footstool. He gave it to encourage them, but I think he also gave it to give kind of a subtle warning to them. Because you remember, this book is written to Jewish people. Some of them were looking over their shoulder back at Judaism and thinking, you know, maybe we ought to go back. And he's subtly saying, if you go back to Judaism, you were joining the losing team. You were going back to Jesus' enemies, and their defeat has already been settled at the cross. And then the sixth thing he says is that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient because it perfected us forever. Notice verse 14. For by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now this verse brings out two vital truths. First of all, it brings out the position of believers. It says He has perfected us for all time. I hear people say all the time, well, you know, I'm not perfect. Well, let me correct you. If you're a believer, you are perfect. Positionally, in God's eyes, you are perfect. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's my, one of my favorite verses. And it, it really boggles my mind because it, it talks about a transaction that takes place that is totally inequitable. It says that God took my sin and placed it on Jesus and He paid for it on the cross. But God didn't stop there. He took Jesus' righteousness and He put it on me so that I am now just as righteous as Jesus Christ. In God's eyes, I am just as perfect as Jesus Christ. And so positionally, we are perfected for all time. And then secondly, this verse brings out the practice of believers because if you look at the end of verse 14, notice it says, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified or those who are being sanctified. That is, those who are every day growing in practical holiness in both our thought and our words and our deed. Now, our position of perfection is granted instantly at the moment of saving faith. Our practice is worked out over a lifetime of growth and obedience. And what I find interesting in verse 14 is the assumption is that these two go hand in hand. If you've got the positional aspect of salvation, the expectation is that you will have the practical aspect of salvation as well. But don't miss this. Verse 1 says the Old Testament sacrifices can never make people perfect. Verse 14 says by one sacrifice, Jesus has perfected us for all time. And then the seventh thing, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient because it provides total forgiveness. Notice verses 15 and 16. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind I will write them. Now notice, he, he, he really paraphrases here what he has already earlier quoted in chapter 8 from Jeremiah 31. And he attributes Jeremiah's prophecy to the Holy Spirit who has inspired all of Scripture. And he quotes, kind of paraphrases the first part of this about the new covenant uh, in verse 16. And I think he wants to get this down because he want to, wants to preempt any argument that might arise. Because you remember back in verse 9, he says, he takes away the first. 
talking about all the sacrifices. And if you throw out all the sacrifices, it's evident you're really throwing out the law. So the accusation is going to be, well, if you throw out the law, then you're going to have lawless people. And so he throws in the first part of this quote to let them know that God's people are marked by obedience from the heart. But then he adds what he really wants to get to in verse 17. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God doesn't remember your sins. You say, why not? Is He forgetful? No. Because they are forgiven. Back in verse 12, He said, His one sacrifice took away our sins. And God remembers them no more. And then His conclusion comes down in verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. There is nothing more to pay for. There are no more sacrifices to be made. The Old Testament sacrifices are now rendered worthless and obsolete. But they pointed to Jesus has fulfilled. Through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you as a believer under the new covenant receive God's total forgiveness. And where there is total forgiveness in Christ, why would you want to go back to a system that can never provide it? When you have got total forgiveness because of the cross of Jesus Christ, why would you even consider going back to a program, a system of religion that does not provide it? You see, I would say to you that when you have been to the cross of Jesus Christ, why would you want to look anywhere else? His sacrifice obtained total forgiveness his sacrifice perfects you for all time. His sacrifice sanctifies us once and for all. And His sacrifice completely takes away the guilt of our sins. Going back to the Jewish system or going back to any religious system that's based on man's works or man's efforts or man's sacrifices is a shadow. Jesus is a substance. And so as we close our service today, I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. I'm going to ask us to stand as we sing together. And if you've never come to the cross of Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come to know Him today. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, you can come as we sing, and I'll be happy to meet with you, pray with you, and show you how you can come to know Jesus Christ today. I know there are some here who want to join today. You can come as we sing as well. Let's make this our song, our prayer to the Lord. Let's tell Him, you're all that I ever wanted. You're all that I ever need. Because His one sacrifice accomplished it all. Let's